I want to invite you to grab your Bible and turn it to Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Now, here's what's happening today. You're going to kind of get three mini-sermons in one. Three for the price of one. Just saying, we could use more of those deals in the grocery store. I'm tired. This is not part of the message, but I'm tired of having to sell off a kidney to buy the meat and the milk and the eggs and the bread and all these things. So we'll have a three-for-one deal in church. Don't say I never did anything for you. And I don't know exactly where this will land for you today. I guess I kind of never do. But I'm just going to preach you the word, and I'm going to let the Lord deal with the results. Sound okay? Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Now, for context, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, disciples of Jesus, they were walking to the temple. They saw the, a guy who was crippled, who had been for his whole life, and they healed this guy. It was a miracle. People came and flocked to see what was happening. They said, it's in the, by the name of Jesus that this happened. If you missed that last week, sidebar plug for Sean. Sean preached last week, did an awesome job. Go back and listen to that online if you missed it. So that was Acts chapter 3, and while this was all going on, this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 4. It says this, as they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. When you hear the word Sadducee, that's where the ominous theme music starts to play. It came upon them. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well." This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Yeah, that's a good one, isn't it? Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with who? Jesus. We'll come back to that verse for sure. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. 
again, the super cool thing about the book of Acts, about the Bible in general, this is a pretty cool story of something that happened a long time ago. It's a pretty cool story, right? But it's not just a story about what happened back then. It's full of principles for today, which I love. And the first one is this. First mini sermon of three is that we can expect pushback. Somebody say pushback. That's what these disciples, Peter and John, meet in this sequence. They're going around doing good stuff. The Holy Spirit is moving. The church is thriving. The gospel is advancing. Good things are happening. And then the pushback comes. And they meet pushback in the form of, first, in verse 3, they get arrested. Hello. Verse 7, they get put on trial. Verse 18, they're charged not to speak about Jesus, directly instructed not to. And then to put a cherry on the top in verse 21, they're threatened some more on top of that. I don't know what you would call that. I would call that pushback. Just saying. This right here in Acts chapter 4, this is the beginning of the persecution of the church. We're going to see this persecution, the harassment, the oppression toward the church ramp up as we go through Acts. But this is the start of it. And you say, oh, why would the church be persecuted? What causes that to happen? Well, I'll tell you since you asked. It's because we're at war. We don't always like to think of that, and we think life is nice, smooth sailing and sunshine and roses. No, we're at war, friends. I'll remind you, it says in Ephesians chapter 6, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and powers and principalities and authorities of darkness in the heavenly places, in, a.k.a. the spiritual places. There's a spiritual war happening all around us all the time. And Satan, what he's doing, he is working hard to destroy the things that God makes and God builds and God establishes. One of those things is the church. Guess what? Satan hates the church. He hates us. He hates you guys, man. But it's true. And what happens is when things are going poorly in the church, Satan doesn't really need to do that much. He's like, nah, I'll sit back, I'll get out the Doritos and watch Netflix and watch these guys ruin this themselves. However, when things are going well in the church and when the Holy Spirit is moving in the church, Satan takes notice. He gets freaked out and he starts to work overtime to discredit and undermine the church. That's what happens here in Acts chapter 4. Satan hates what's happening, and so he goes after it. And you say, well, that's not fair. It's war. You say, all they did was do a good thing and help the guy. Why would they? Yeah, it's war. That's why. They're doing God's work. War. You can argue all you want and try to, try to figure out why all you want. It's because we're at war. And Satan is very happy to play dirty. He doesn't mind at all. These guys here in Acts chapter 4, they had just done a good thing, the right thing. They hadn't broken the law, they hadn't done anything wrong, and they're called to the carpet. Not fair. Persecution, because it's war. That's what happens. They were directly ordered to not speak about Jesus. Wow, you say that's pretty intense? War. You getting the picture here? What he's doing, he's trying to discourage these guys. Satan probably would have been happy if these religious leaders just like lopped their heads off right here. That's not what happened. He probably would have been happy. What he's doing, he's discouraging though. Because if you as a believer say, okay, I want to love and serve Jesus and I want to be a witness for Jesus like we were instructed in Acts 1.8 and I want to go out and represent him well and, and I'll speak about him when the opportunities come up. Oh, wait, but if this is going to happen to me, you know, I have plans today. I don't really want to get arrested 
If that's going to happen to me, I better not. I better pull back. I better not speak. I better not stand out. I better not open my mouth. It's a discouragement tactic right there. Again, this is completely for today as well. Here's what the Bible says about this. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, this is what God says to us. He says, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon us to test us as though something strange were happening to us. Don't even be surprised. Sometimes we feel the heat because we're Christians and we go, God, why? He says, don't be surprised. You're at war. This is what happens. Fighting, conflict, it all happens in war. The world hates us as Christians. Satan hates us. They hated Jesus first. And Jesus literally said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And so it doesn't matter if you say, well, but I'm a nice person. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you have this great message called the gospel that literally saves and changes and transforms lives. doesn't matter. It's war. And Satan comes back to the same tricks today as he did back then. You know, we give him kind of a lot of credit sometimes. He doesn't really have that diverse of a playbook, though. He kind of has one playbook and uses the same tricks out of it all the time, like we see here. Now, things were going well in the early church, so Satan pushed back against them. Let me just bring it into our day. Things are going well at our church. First of all, let's thank the Lord for that for a second. Thank you, God. It's awesome. We're blessed. We're super blessed. Therefore, Satan's paying attention. Right? He's now up off the couch. His feet are no longer up on the footstool. He's coming for us. Be prepared. We can expect pushback. This is not a matter of if. As far as I'm concerned, it's a matter of when. And I don't say that to us today to cause us to freak out and live in fear. Right? I'm not saying any of this to cause us to live in a way of, oh, well, I better watch my step because something bad might be around the turn. No, that's called fear. That's no way to live. I'm just telling you this because we see it in the scriptures and we need to be prepared. How will we, how will we respond when, not if, the pushback comes? I don't know what it'll look like. I don't know whether it will be arrests or trials. I don't know what it is. But you can just remember that I said this on this day, February the 18th, 2024, when the pushback comes, you can say, all right, God called it. His word called it. So we good so far? One mini sermon done. Second one is this. I want to talk about a religious spirit. A religious spirit. Now, people will often lump us as believers into the category of religious they kind of don't really know better, but you've probably, if you've been a Christian long enough, you've probably had the conversation with someone that where they find out you go to church or you're a believer and they go, oh, so you're religious. My favorite one, they ask me, oh, so you're a priest? No, I'm not a priest. I'm not. They call me father sometimes at the funeral home and stuff. I'm like, no, stop, stop. Anyway, but you've probably heard that, right? Oh, you must be religious. And again, Let's not be too hard on particularly unbelievers for saying that about us. They don't know any better. But let me just like tell you something. Religious is not really something we should strive to be known as. Okay? It's actually the worst. Religion is literally the worst. And I'll explain what I mean by that. You can see on the screen, religion is defined as a set or system 
of attitudes and beliefs that are held with supreme importance. You can like write that down or take a picture of that. Religion is a set or system of attitudes and beliefs that are held with supreme importance. It sounds innocent enough, right? But the problem is this. Our faith as believers in Jesus, it's not a religion. It's not primarily about being a system. It's not primarily about holding on to these things as supreme virtues. That's not at the top of the food chain for us. It's not about the rules primarily. It's not about our traditions primarily. It's not about upholding the letter of of the code primarily. What our faith is, first and foremost, it's a relationship, not a religion. And that's a huge difference today, friends. It's a relationship with God, a a real, literal, life-giving, life-changing, eternity-altering relationship with the God who made you. And it's not just some theory or metaphor. It's as real of a relationship as you have with any human being. That's what God wants. We were created to be close to God, to connect with God, to walk with God, to worship God, to relate to God, just like this. That's what our faith is all about. That's why Jesus speaks on things like he says, the most important commandment in the Bible is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's why Jesus comes along and says things like, I've come to give you life abundantly. That's why Jesus says things like eternal life, true life, full life is knowing God, relationship with God. So what this tells us is that God is first and foremost concerned with your being and not your doing. It's not about what you do. It's not about the rules and attitudes and beliefs that you uphold. First and foremost, it's about being with him, being close to him, being in a relationship with him, being saved by him. If you don't know Jesus, he loves you. He died for you on a cross to pay for your sins. He rose in victory. He died and rose so that you could be reconciled to God so that you could have a relationship. That's the whole thing. It's super important. Now, you might say to that, well, are you telling me, Braden, that the doing isn't important? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. You definitely have things to do as a believer. There's definitely good works to pursue and things to grow in, and and definitely our effort is needed. But I'm saying it's not the foundation of our faith. Actually, what Jesus says is, if you love me, relationship, you will follow my commands because you're going to want to follow it because you love me. And that's how it happens. It just dovetails together. But it's Jesus first. It's the relationship first and the rules follow that. It's all about the heart. Somebody say the heart. When the Bible talks about your heart, it's not talking usually about the organ that pumps the blood through your body. It's talking metaphorically about the center of who you are the very core of who, you're, of who you are, your priorities, your character, your motivations, your love, your hopes, your fears, your dreams, all of these things flow from the heart. Your words even flow from your heart. That's why it says in Proverbs chapter four, we need to guard our heart above all else. Jesus didn't say you need to guard your religion above all else. No, it's the heart. It's right there. And here's what religion does. It skips the heart. It skips the being, and it goes straight to the doing. It's not about the relationship. It's about staying true to the system. And again, 
We ought to stay true to the things that we believe and the convictions that we have, but they come from the relationship. There's no heart in religion at all. You can actually uphold the rules in a religious system perfectly. Check. You can hit every box. You can make every mark. You can be super religious and super pious, but you can completely miss the point if your heart's not engaged completely miss it it's worthless jesus literally says in matthew chapter 15 people who are like that he says yeah they worship me with their lips they look externally like they have it all going on but their heart is far from me and you know what he says about that he says in vain do they worship me when it's like that vain waste of time your worship means absolutely nothing to god if your heart is disconnected from it always comes back to the heart. And again, in a religious system, in a religious structure, when the heart is not chief importance, what it is, you're always going to be striving. You're always going to be saying, have I done enough? Have I earned my way? Have I proven myself to be worthy to God? Have I done enough to maintain my status with God? And I'm saying, that's a terrible way to live. Some of you have done that, and you can testify to that. If it's all about the rules and making sure that we're good enough, that's a terrible, it's hopeless, it's empty, it's discouraging. Which is funny because the word religion, I looked this up, it comes from an old Latin word. I don't speak Latin. However, it comes from the word religare, which means to bind. Religion, bondage, following the rules, ties you down. You miss the point, and it sucks the life out of you. And it's very easy to fall prey to a religious spirit. The moment our hearts check out and become disconnected and disengaged, we risk slipping into that, and we're vulnerable. So what I want to do, I want to show you four things from our text in Acts 4 that happen under a religious spirit. This will be fun. These four things can happen to you as an individual. They can happen to a whole church. These four things can all be present or it can be a mix, some present, some not present. So again, Lord, speak to us in this and point out any unclean thing that is in us if it's there. The first thing you see in a religious system under a religious spirit is poisoned leadership. See, we're getting real now, getting serious now. You have to just take note, in Acts chapter 4, the pushback toward God's people, toward these disciples, toward these believers, it didn't come from the world. It didn't come from those outside the church. It didn't come from those heathens out there. Huh? It came from the inside. It came from the religious leaders of the day. They weren't just God's people. They were leaders. Leaders of the people of Israel. Like the Sadducees are mentioned here. They were a political, Jewish political and religious sect. They were wealthy. They were influential. They carried weight. They were especially interested in things that pertained to the temple. And one of the things about the Sadducees, we'll talk about it a little bit later, is they didn't believe that there was a resurrection from the dead. That's kind of what got their knickers in a knot so to speak right 
What do you mean resurrection? They were against that. But it's not just the Sadducees. Look here. There's the captain of the temple, the priests, the rulers, the elders, the scribes, even the high priest and his family. These are all leadership roles in the nation of Israel. And if you read the scriptures, these groups of people are routinely called out by Jesus for being super religious, for looking the part on the outside, but completely missing the heart on the inside. And what people like this do is that they try really, really hard to follow the rules. That's what religion is. You follow the rules, you earn your way, you prove yourself to be righteous. These are some of the most zealous rule followers on the planet, and they work to outperform everybody else, and that's often why they rise to the top. And when this happens, human nature kicks in, and the Wild West happens, because Here's the thing. In our flesh, people love power. People love influence. People love titles and parking places and corporate cards and all these things. These things aren't automatically wrong. However, when your heart is wrong, those things are wrong for you. And these people love the power. They love climbing the ladder. They love being the man and being in the place of influence. But again, the problem is their heart is dead on the inside. And what you're seeing here is now you've got people who are heartless and dead and religious. Now they're in leadership and influence over other people. And what happens then, since it's all about rules and upholding the system, for people in this kind of a position, in this kind of a condition in their heart, what often happens is they start to look down on other people who they don't perceive are meeting the standard quite as well as they do very legalistic, very condescending. They start to look at people as though they're less than and they try to dominate them rather than coming alongside to disciple them and love them and serve them. That's what happens in a religious system when the leadership is bad. So you can see how when this happens maybe in a church, that's bad. Trickles down to everything else because you've got dead people trying to lead other people. You've got blind people trying to lead and it doesn't work. Bad, bad, bad. I would just say this to you. You know what? I'll even say this about myself and your leadership here. Just because someone in the church has a title or a position or an office or influence or responsibility, that doesn't automatically mean that you just blindly trust them. I hope that you trust us. No one threw anything. Okay, that's good. But I'm just saying, you know, as the years go on and as maybe you move to a different place or you're in a different church or there's different leadership in this church or whatever that happens in the future, just because someone's in a position of leadership doesn't mean that their heart is right before the Lord. I'll remind you, Jesus told us to look for the fruit to know if we can trust. He didn't say you judge the leader by their title. He says you judge the tree by its fruit. That's how you trust somebody right there because you can tell by the way that they live that their heart is right before God. That's the question we need to ask ourselves. What fruit are we seeing? What fruit are these guys bearing? Not very good fruit. And the question we need to ask is, okay, is this person or are these people or are these leaders, are they leading people closer to relationship with Jesus or are they leading people to be better box checkers? 
a huge difference. So that's what happens. Number one, the leadership is poisoned. The second one, this one's kind of the most hilarious when you see this in action. Religious people get offended by things that don't offend God. Happens all the time. In verse 2, it says that as Peter and John were speaking, literally speaking about Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, it says the Sadducees and all these cronies show up and they were greatly annoyed. It's not just that they maybe disagreed with them. They're greatly annoyed. There's offense. There's anger there. And the question is, I wonder, why were they annoyed? Well, I'll tell you why. Because they were perceiving that they were losing some of their control and their influence. Right? This is where people speak up when they're like this. They say, this is my ministry. Uh, it's actually God's ministry. Thanks, though. Right? This is where we get territorial. And look, yes, I'm all for a good, healthy team structure, and it can't just be chaos or whatever, but I'm saying, like, when people step up to do the work of God, that's a good thing that should be celebrated. No, these guys say, no, bad, my turf, get out of here. And also, it's because these guys were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Like I said, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. They were, in a word, wrong. They must have not really read the Bible as much as they thought they did. They were wrong. But here's the question about this. They were offended by what the disciples were doing. Here's the question. Was God offended? No. Not at all. And if these guys had had their heart inclined to the Lord at all, I would think they would have noticed that. And they would have seen that what was happening was a good thing. But instead, they get offended because their tradition is being challenged and their turf is getting encroached onto in their eyes. And listen, there's nothing wrong with tradition. There's nothing wrong with you having a role and, and, a, and, a, and a place in ministry and a job to do in ministry. Tradition is fine, but these things make lousy gods. We can't put them first. Jesus did not die so that we could have our traditions and our titles and our roles and our offices. No. So these guys are offended. God is not offended. I could tell you some stories today, friends. And if you've been in the church long enough, I'm not church bashing. I'm saying that you've probably seen this too because this is something really easy for people to slip into. So for fun, I'm going to tell you two stories. First one is this. A couple of years ago, I got asked to do a funeral and a graveside service. I didn't even know the person. I knew someone in the family, but really didn't know hardly anyone at this thing. So we went, we had the funeral, and then right in the car, right over to the cemetery, which was across town. And when we got to the cemetery, the lady from the funeral home runs up to me. She's running. She's going for it. And she says to me quietly, she goes, uh, Braden, yeah, we, uh, we forgot the sand. You know, the sand, like when they're, you know, they sprinkle it on the, uh, we forgot the sand. And we're like across town and this thing starts in two minutes. There's no time to go get sand. I said, that's fine. So don't worry about it. No problem. We'll do without it. I've seen it done both ways lots of times. So we do the graveside. No sand was administered. You know, they do the thing. It's lowered down in. And then we all start to leave. And this woman, not the funeral home woman, but someone else who was there, who I didn't know this person, she came up to me and started talking. And yes, she's a believer and, and all this, and that's great. And there were a lot of non-believers there. And she said, oh, it's good, like, you know, to hear the gospel and all this stuff. And then she stopped dead in her tracks mid-sentence. And this horrified look came on her face. She goes, but the only problem is you didn't use the sand. 
And I mean, I wasn't going to throw the funeral home lady on the bus. I said, oh yeah. I said, we just, we forgot it. No big deal. I was just playing it casual, right? No, that's really bad. She goes, you didn't have the sand. And I, I was about to say, I don't know what to tell you. And I kid you not, this, this woman stoops down. She's panicked. She's looking, she stoops down. This funeral happened in late November. So the ground is mostly frozen. She's scrounging around for dirt on the ground like this. I'm, not, I'm telling you the truth. And she picks this handful of dirt and runs back to the grave and throws it on the grave like this. And you could see, oh, this wave of calm washed over her. And I don't mean this wrong. I'm not looking down on this woman. I felt really bad for her. Because I don't know. I don't read anywhere in my Bible that the funeral and the graveside becomes invalid if you forgot the sand. But for her, it's like literally in her mind, I don't know what was in her mind, but she very well could have been thinking that person might go to hell if we don't do the sand. Come on now. They're already dead. Another one, another story. Uh, about 10 years ago, I worked in a church plant in Nova Scotia. So if you've ever been in the church plant atmosphere at all, it's like very frenzied, everyone's in, like all hands on deck, everybody has a job or six, and you're just trying to make it work, and you're trying to rally the troops and, and kind of generate some excitement about what, what God is doing and all this. So that was the boat we were in. And this church was a brand new church. Uh, we met in a movie theater in Dartmouth Crossing. So you go in and the arcade is here and you go in and you can smell the popcorn and you go sit down and there's a 90-foot screen in front of you and you're like waiting for the previews to start kind of thing. Anyway, that was fine. It was like a mad scramble frenzy, the whole thing. And what we used to do every Sunday after we'd finish our gathering is we would go up, we had an office upstairs and we would go to the office and sort of debrief because there were many things that were, you know, getting patched as we went. Like, okay, this job, we're not doing great at it, but it's survivable. That's the church plant world. And we debrief. And okay, what do we need to improve? What went well? All these things. And I remember on one day after church, there was this woman there who I think was a friend of one of our regular kind of inner circle people. And uh, this woman was up in our meeting afterward, the debrief. And we were talking about this and that, just technical stuff. And then the pastor asked her, he said, hey, you're new. This was your first time. I would like to get your perspective on how this went today. And this woman, I will never forget, she was very just quiet, unassuming. She said, well, so I could tell she wanted to give a thoughtful answer. She goes, that wasn't church. We laughed. We thought she was like kidding, but I didn't get it, but I didn't want to be the one idiot not laughing. I went, oh yeah. Like, I don't understand. And then she goes, no, I'm serious. That wasn't church today. No stained glass windows, no pews. I don't like the arcade being here. Screen's too big. Music's too loud. This wasn't church. Wrote it off altogether. And again, not looking down on this person. This is someone that Jesus loves. I went, you're allowed to have your preferences. But I'm like, it wasn't church? Like, pretty sure we were here singing to Jesus together. Like, I think we just had church, lady. And uh, she did not have the gift of encouragement in any case, but <laughs> that was it. There was no helpful, constructive feedback. It was, that wasn't church. AKA, you guys are the worst. Like, okay, great. Again, have your preferences. But like, if that's what church is, if that's like so important to you, like, I don't know. That doesn't really sit right with me. Anyway, I could tell you more stories. Time does not permit me to. 
If these conversations are prevalent in our lives, personally, or as a church, like if we're far more fussed over these things than we are excited about Jesus and the gospel and being filled with the Holy Spirit and living in community with one another as we walk with Jesus, something's very wrong. That's what I'm saying. Getting offended by things that don't offend God. Another thing that happens when there's a religious spirit is people will actually act in opposition to what God is doing. Not like by accident, oops, Lord, like you were going north and I went south. They'll on purpose do it. That's what happens here. In Acts chapter 4, there was this undeniable sign that happened. A guy got healed by the power of God. He was up walking. Everyone was praising God. It literally says directly that their praise was going to the Lord. And the response from the religious people is, let's arrest them and give them a hard time. Doesn't make any sense. Matter of fact, if you read this, it almost appears like they arrested the guy that got healed too. Because it says in verse 14 that he was standing there in the midst when they were on trial. Like how backwards is that? It's not just that the religious people don't buy and immediately accept what's happening. It's that they see it and they intentionally act against it, to oppose it. I remember hearing of a church years ago. And in this church, things were going well. Things were booming. People were getting saved kingdoms advancing, good stuff happening. And as you probably know, as the church grows, there's certain changes that need to happen to accommodate the growth and further growth. And I don't know if you know this or not, sometimes we don't like change, okay? And in this church I'm talking about, this was probably the first occasion ever that someone in the church didn't like change. No, I don't think so. There were changes being made, whatever they were, it doesn't even matter, they got upset. And even though God was clearly moving, clearly working, they could not get past their hang-up of, I don't like these changes that I'm seeing, because this is my church, and I didn't say it could change. And so what they did is they went and found a membership role. In this context, again, I wasn't immediately in this context, but evidently it was the kind of place where if you were a member in 1980 and you never like formally revoked your membership or died or something, you were still a member, you know, 20, 30 years later. And so what they did is they started calling people on this list of members. Some of them hadn't been to church in 20 years. And they started saying, you'd never believe the changes that are happening in this church, your church, our church. Can you believe it? Can you imagine? And they got people all wound up. Shortly after that, that church's annual meeting was happening. And at the annual meeting where voting would happen, all these members showed up that had no idea about what was happening in the church. No context. They were just kind of the, the goon squad, honestly, showed up and they voted against everything. They literally voted out the elders, which is another problem in itself. There was staff that quit and there was a massive church split. The whole thing got derailed. Brutal. Brutal. But that's what you see in a religious spirit. You say, why would people do that? Because that's what religious people do. They work against when God is clearly working and moving. And then the fourth one, this one's kind of sobering. In a religious spirit, people will continue to justify ungodly behavior. So it's not just that they're doing it. It's that they will actually convince themselves that they're in the right to do it. And they have the right to do it. You can see in verse 17 here, it says, we're going to tell these people to stop 
speaking about Jesus in order that it may spread no further among the people. You can almost hear the tone of, we're doing the people a favor if we silence these guys. That's twisted. That's, that's messed up. Even when their back is against the wall. It already, we already read in this chapter, they couldn't deny what was happening. They had no answer for it. But they still work against it. And they still come up with an excuse to justify it. This is what happens in a religious system where there is no heart and there's this uh, thirst and quest for power. People will do anything to gain and maintain the balance of power. They'll do anything. This is where it gets pretty sobering and real for us as believers because this is where you start to see things like believers justifying things like slavery in the past. It's not just that non-Christians did that. Believers in Jesus leadership in churches would say, you know, they'd take scripture and twist it way out of context and they'd say, we're absolutely in our right to own and, and mistreat slaves and own them like livestock. Horrible, horrible. This is where you see things like the Crusades. I don't know if you know about the Crusades. I will not give a lengthy history on them. They were a series of religious wars that took place, say, 800,000 years ago. They were a while ago. And they were... Literal wars, fighting, killing, bloodshed, conquest, military, all of that. And they were sanctioned by the church, right? In those days, the church and state were very, you know, like this. The church was kind of the government. And they literally said, yes, we need to go into that place, into that territory, into that nation and wipe out the people because they're enemies of God. Literally need to kill them and take the territory. Brutal. The, the Crusades actually got worse too the church started sanctioning campaigns against other Christians in the Crusades. People that thought maybe differently than the, than the system thought, the religious system. People who were believers nonetheless, yep, got to take them out because they're enemies of God and they're heathens and they're blasphemers. And they literally kill other Christians. Horrible. But they justified it because they thought they were in the right. This is where this is kind of real for us this morning too, but I'll say it because it's a more recent history kind of thing. This is like where people in the church justified things like residential schools. Quiet in the room, right? Yes, those were kind of set up by the government, but they were administered a lot of times by churches and church organizations. And, and how believers in Jesus got to a place where they said, yes, it's perfectly justifiable that we march into indigenous communities and forcibly remove children from their homes and families and send them to these boarding schools where they will be subject to abuse of every kind and mistreatment of every kind. And then in some of these places we're finding out in recent years, literally, sometimes they would be killed and mass graves would be set up on site. These are churches leading these things. Horrible. How do we get there? It's because... The heart doesn't come first. And when the heart doesn't come first, we'll do horrible things and justify them thinking we're in the right. It's bad. This is why religion is so bad. And we can't afford to go down that road at all. Now, let's take a breath. Here's the good news. This spirit, this is not something that we see prevalent in our church right now. Like you should know, your leaders pay attention. Okay, we watch as best we can. This is not a spirit that is prevalent or dominating our church at all. So that's good. Actually, can we thank the Lord again for that? That's really good. That's really good. 
But I say this to you today because we need to guard our hearts against it nonetheless. We can't just rest on our laurels and go into autopilot. We need to watch against a religious spirit because it's so easy. We can all be so vulnerable so fast. If you hear that, what we've talked about, and you say, oh, I feel like that kind of is sort of present in my life. I feel like maybe my heart is not first and I'm trying to just do things and check off boxes first. I love you. But what you need to do is repent. That means quit doing what you're doing and go down a different road. What you need to do is get honest with the Lord, get with the Lord, talk to the Lord. It's what you do in a relationship and be open with him and ask for his forgiveness and ask him to change you. And here's the good news about that. The Bible says when we draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. He loves you. And even if you have been acting religiously in your life, God can change that. He can forgive that. And he can light you up. You don't have to stay in this kind of system. I'm just telling you. Bondage. But for freedom, Christ has set us free. So you can make the choice on that one. Okay, third thing. Third mini-sermon and then I'm done. I want to talk about responses and results that we see in Acts chapter 4 that we've read today. I want to talk about what happened in the wake of this pushback that these disciples had from the religious people. We see in this text that we read that Peter speaks up. He takes an opportunity, he opens his mouth, and he speaks. But I want to even just work backwards from that. Yes, that's what Peter did, but he was able to do that because, it takes care in verse 8 to say, because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, And you say, well, okay, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Well, it's because, you can see it on the screen right there, it all started because they had been with, a little louder, please. That's where I want to begin to talk about this. It was observed that these believers had been with Jesus. Again, relationship. Hung out, spent time together, close to Jesus, walked with Jesus, on fire for Jesus, changed by Jesus. I reference 2 Corinthians 3.18 all the time because it's a great verse. It's when we behold the glory of the Lord, a.k.a. when we get close to him and the closer we get to him, it says that we are changed. You cannot get close to Jesus and come out looking the same. Doesn't happen. And even if you got to Jesus, you know, close to Jesus once, as you get closer and closer to him, you change again and again, more and more. That's how it works. That's like physics. That's just how it works. These people had been spending time with Jesus and it rubbed off. It was visible to other people. This is where we got to start. It's great if in your mind you say, yes, I want to be effective for the Lord. I want to serve the Lord. I want to witness for the Lord. That's great. But that's not where it starts, right? That's your doing. Never mind the doing if you don't have that. If you're struggling in your walk, if you're struggling, you feel like God is distant maybe or you're not on fire or you're having trouble getting motivated to do much of anything for the Lord, start with this. Draw near to God. Get close to Jesus. He's right there. He wants the relationship with you. Press in. I dare you to press in and see what he does to you. Dare you. Like, let's not sit around and feel sorry for us. Oh, God's so distant and oh, yeah. yeah. Or we could like take a step in and see what he does. Your choice. But don't come crying to me. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I probably need to preach that to myself sometimes. But anyway, so yes, 
They'd been with Jesus. And then it says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the presence and the power of God himself living in us and, and extraordinary things happening as we give space for the Holy Spirit to lead and govern in our lives. We've talked about this in the past weeks. This is where we find the strength to be effective and bold in our witness. It's not our own strength. You don't have the strength, but the Holy Spirit does. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, but we are called as well to be filled with the Holy Spirit, like Peter is right here. Be filled with the Spirit. And that, that is where your effectiveness will come from. And again, the, we've talked about this, the path to being filled with the Spirit, that starts with getting close to Jesus, surrendering to Him, being near to Him. Like this is not, one is not divorced from the other. It's all tied in. So these guys had been with Jesus. Subsequently, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Peter spoke, it says, So the Holy Spirit living in him directed him to do what he did in this sequence. First of all, in verse 9, if you go to the next slide, please. First, he points out the hypocrisy in the religious leaders. He says, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed that we did to a crippled man, like even that right there should be enough to go, oh yeah, right. This doesn't make any sense. Right? The courts don't exist to punish people that do the right thing. They're there to prosecute people who do the wrong thing. And they hadn't done anything wrong. Now, I'll point out, he does it respectfully. Look at it, he says, rulers of the people and elders. He doesn't start yelling and cursing and swearing at them. Even though they're the worst and they're wrong, he's still respectful. But he points out the hypocrisy. And then he shares the gospel again. We should be counting how many times the gospel gets shared in the book of Acts. It's a lot. And Peter comes right back to it again. By the name of Jesus Christ, we healed this guy, he says. This Jesus whom you crucified, whom God raised. In verse 12, he talks about how there's salvation in no one else but Jesus. In verse 20, he even says, I love this. He says, we can't help but share what we've seen and heard. Like, is that our experience as Christians? You can't help sharing about Jesus? Sometimes, like, That's not my experience, I'll be honest. But that's the flesh, that's not the spirit. One of the marks of the Holy Spirit working in you is that you will be so on fire, you'll have a burning desire in your heart to share with people. Some of you are sitting, let's let's get real, let's get real here. Some of you are sitting here and you literally don't want to share the gospel with anyone. You literally don't even care about sharing the gospel with anyone. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's not him leading you in that direction at all. Peter, it is quiet. Did you notice that? (laughs) By the way, that's an invitation, not a condemnation. Something for all all of us to walk into on that. Uh, What I love too, is when Peter shares the gospel with these guys who are literally have arrested him, could do great harm to him. Peter even includes the offense in the gospel. He's like, you guys crucified Jesus. You rejected him. He doesn't shy away at all even in the face of great opposition and potential harm. And the coolest thing to me about how Peter and they share the gospel here, verse 13, if you go to the next slide, this is an amazing verse. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. That word common, let this minister to somebody, that comes from the Greek word idiote. 
by some standard, these guys were idiots. But they were astonished at these idiots. Write that down in your book. These guys weren't the learned, educated, rich, scholarly, influential. These guys were fishermen, actually. These guys were nobodies. But, but the Holy Spirit in them, they were a wrecking ball for the kingdom. It's not about you. It's about the Spirit living in you. And this here, this rules out this elitist mentality. Well, I could never be used by God. I could never witness for Jesus. I could never share the gospel. I could never serve someone. I could never disciple someone because I don't know enough. And what if they have questions and I'm inexperienced? And what if they have arguments? And blah, 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 blah. Listen, if you allow yourself to be filled with the Spirit and used by God the kingdom of darkness will cringe before you and the spirit of God that lives in you. Cringe. Because, yes, to Jesus. Yes, to the Holy Spirit. The question today is not, oh, would God ever want to use me? No, the question is, am I willing to be used by God? That's the question on the floor. And some of you guys, I say this again out of love, some of you guys are missing out in your walk because you're not surrendering to this. Great, it's, listen, and to be very clear, it's great that you love the Lord. It's great that you have a relationship with the Lord. It's great that you have your quiet time and your Bible study. We say a hard yes to all of these things. But I'm, I'm betting that you're still saying, there still seems like there's something missing. It might be this, okay? Because it's about being a witness. God has called and commanded and instructed each one of us to be a witness, and when we're not doing that and when we're not stepping out, yeah, it should feel like something's missing because it is. Again, kind of quiet, right? Like you all love the Jesus loves you message. The Jesus sends you messages aren't quite as nice to hear, right? But again, if you are struggling with this, I have struggled immensely with this in my life, okay? This is, it's okay because God loves you. You need to repent of this. If there's fear, repent. If there's apathy, repent. Get close to Jesus. Be filled by his spirit and then step out in boldness when God gives you opportunities. Let's change. Let's repent. We don't have to get stuck in this. Look, we have the message. We know Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. We need to get out there and be rubbing shoulders with people and pointing them to Jesus. Bar none. That's it. That's what we need. So if you're struggling, or you don't know where to start, oh, you get close to the Lord, he's going to tell you where to start. He got no problem pointing you in the direction of people that need what you have. That's the least of your problems. And we're here, look, I'll say this, the leaders, the elders of the church, we're here to support you guys all through that. You guys, we're all here to support each other through it. We are all witnesses together, brothers and sisters. So let's pick up the rope and pull on it. That's all I'm saying. I'm going to wind this down here. All I want to point out to you as I close is talking about the results of what came of this. Peter. Peter had an opportunity to witness, to do what God had laid in front of him. And he took it. In this case, it was share the gospel. He boldly does it. Peter's a nobody, but he's filled with the Spirit of God. He's being har harassed and oppressed. He does it anyway.
and he leaves the results to God. And there's two results that we see here in Acts 4. The first one is this. Not everyone accepted what he said. Okay, the religious people here, there's no mention made, at least yet, about any sort of change in them. They heard the gospel. They directly heard the gospel spoken right to them. And they thought about it. And they had a little conference, a little powwow, a little meeting. And they decided that they were fine and they could carry on the way they'd been living and justifying their resistance of Jesus. And they didn't surrender and they didn't accept. I'm just telling you, when you step out, you're going to meet that response. Because here's what the enemy will do. You stepped out, you shared the gospel, and they didn't receive it. You must have done it wrong. What kind of Christian are you? We rebuke that lie. That's the enemy. Not everyone will accept and receive it. But here's the good news. Number two, many did accept. Look, I love that it says this in here. Many of those who heard the word, what? Believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Remember, that's just the men. It'd be more than that with the women and children. The church is growing. The gospel is bearing fruit through the mouths, through the testimony of these nobodies. And it's spreading like wildfire. And I believe, again, this is not a story just for the past. This is a principle for the present. The fields are white unto harvest. There are people, even now in a post-Christian Canada, where societally we don't give a rip about the Lord, there are people hungry to know Jesus. And you know Jesus, and you have the message to share. you got to share it, because many people accept it. And it bears fruit. So we can't shy away, even if, look, even if we meet opposition, even if it gets uncomfortable for us. We are witnesses, people. Period. No fine print. Witnesses. I'm going to leave us with that. 